Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Caroline Glick, an American-born Israeli columnist and author of two books, join us to discuss the U.S.-Israel bond, A Deep Look. Mrs. Glick will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mrs. Caroline Glick. Sorry, you're muted. There you go. Okay. Hi. Well, it's such a great uh, pleasure to uh, be uh, speaking to your audience today. I pre long appreciated the work uh, that's done by the uh, Middle East Forum. And so just in my brief uh, introduction to the question of U.S.-Saudi, I mean, U.S.-Israel relations, um, I, think, I think it's instructive for a second um, to see them in the prism of what I just sort of led with by mistake, which is U.S.-Saudi relations. Because um, on February 14th, 1945, uh, then President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, just two months before uh, he passed away, met with the founder of Saudi Arabia, Ibn Saud, aboard the USS Quincy. And in that meeting, uh, Ibn Saud, I talk about this actually in, a, in an article that's coming out in Newsweek uh, tomorrow. Uh, Ibn Saud and Roosevelt discussed the crisis of Jewish refugees, Holocaust survivors. And uh, FDR asked Ibn Saud what he thought uh, should be done with these uh, homeless Jewish refugees who had just survived the Holocaust. And Ibn Saud said that he thought that they should be sent back to the places that he ca they came from. And then if they couldn't go there, then they should go to the Axis countries because, you know, they, they were the ones who had oppressed the Jews. Um, and FDR seemed to agree with that. He said, well, you know, from our information, uh, three million Polish Jews were killed. And, um, well, there should be a lot of room for the Jews who are now uh, in the DP camps. And then uh, the next uh, section of that uh, discussion about the Jews, uh, Ibn Saud explained to FDR that the Arabs would be willing to die to prevent the Jews from settling in the land of Israel and that no Jewish immigrants should be allowed to go there and that the Arabs would never accept coexistence with Israel either in the region or anywhere else. And FDR said that they would never uh, treat Arab interests with hostility and uh, that Ibn Saud should understand that the statements being made in Congress on behalf of the Jewish refugees uh, who had survived the Holocaust and were in the displaced persons camps in Europe was really just a reflection of the pathologies of the American system and that they had nothing to do and no reflection on his administration and that the U.S. government would not help the Jews. And I, I thought that that was really a, um, an interesting place to begin a discussion of U.S.-Israel relations because I would argue that the Arab-Israel conflict didn't begin on May 15th, uh, 1948, when Israel uh, declared its independence and uh, it was invaded by a pan-Arab force from five different countries or seven diff different countries, depending on how you count, um, it actually began that day because the United States gave the Arabs a green light effectively to reject uh, the incipient Jewish state and to die in order to fight and destroy it. And, and um, what was interesting about that was that in 12 successive U.S. administrations, uh, the president of the United States essentially kept FDR's word to Ibn Saud in the sense that they never 
the United States' policy was always to accept the legitimacy of the Arabs' rejection of the Jewish state's right to exist. And not only that, um, at least from the time of Richard Nixon, the United States uh, placed, adopted policies that effectively placed the existence of the Arab conflict with the, with the state of Israel, the Arab rejection of the state of Israel, on Israel. It said that Israel was blamed for it because of the absence of a Palestinian Arab state in land west of the Jordan River that Israel controlled. So that um, they adopted the Arab view, the Arab narrative, that there is something inherently illegitimate about the Jewish state in the land of Israel, that the Arabs are right to reject it, and that um, and that the the uh, onus for peacemaking was on the Jews and not on the Arabs, and that the Jews had to prove their worthiness of peace by appeasing the Palestinian Arabs who live west of the Jordan River. Um, and the first time that we saw a departure from that in 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 U.S. policy was under President Trump. Uh, when President Trump uh, embraced Israel as an ally, uh, recognized Israel's capital city of Jerusalem, moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, and did a, a, a number of other things that indicated that the U.S. policy was no longer uh, to treat Israel's legitimacy as conditional on other people's acceptance of it, namely uh, the Palestinians, but rather that it was intrinsic uh, to the very nature of the Jewish state. And I, I would argue that part of the reason that Donald Trump, who initially when he came into office and really for the first three years of his presidency was pushing very hard for Israel to make concessions to the Palestinians, the reason that that position changed more or less in the last year of his presidency, and we saw it, uh, um, we saw the, the capstone of that change in the uh, signing of the Abraham Accords between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain at the uh, White House, and then later Sudan and Morocco joined them, um, was because the Arabs had already abandoned uh, Ibn Saud's view of Israel. Uh, it wasn't the United States that instigated the building of uh, partnerships, strategic partnerships against Iran, uh, and the Muslim Brotherhood between the Gulf Arab states and Egypt and Israel. It was the Arabs themselves who saw that Israel, uh, in the absence of a strong U.S., with uh, Obama seeking to uh, reach an accommodation with Iran that legitimized its nuclear weapons program and its uh, hegemonic designs on the region, uh, the Arabs realized that their best ally was actually the state of Israel, the strongest bar to Iran asserting hegemonic powers that endangered their very existence was the state of Israel. And so they were the ones who abandoned Ibn Saud's assessment of Israel. Uh, the Saudis under Mohammed bin Salman actually led the way and they facilitated and enabled the normalization of ties between the UAE and Bahrain, Morocco, Morocco and Sudan and the Jewish state. And I'll say one last thing about the Abraham Accords, which is that um, their name, which was given to them by David Friedman and, and others inside of the White House, uh, is essentially a, an acceptance, marks an acceptance by the Arabs of the organic um, uh, legitimacy of the state of Israel, that the Jews as the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like the Arabs as the sons of uh, Ishmael, are the legitimate owners of the land uh, in the Middle East and the Levant. 
And so that was really a step up, a leap forward, actually, between the cold peace treaties that Israel signed with Egypt and Jordan, which were really simply uh, glorified ceasefire agreements. Um, and this brings us to the Saudis. Today, uh, uh, Netanyahu has now started his sixth term in office. Um, and during the campaign leading up to the November 1st elections and since, Netanyahu has said he has uh, pledged to uh, seek a uh, normalization of, of ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which would essentially mark a Saudi official uh, membership in the Abraham Accords. And Netanyahu has talked about how this would be a quantum leap forward in uh, relations between Arabs and Jews. Um, and he's right because, and and actually, he's understanding the point because it's not just Arabs and Jews. Saudi Arabia, as the guardian of the two mosques in Mecca and Medina that are most sacred to Islam, is not only the most important Arab country; it's the most important Islamic country. So, if Saudi Arabia were to make peace with Israel, it would have a massive impact on the Islamic world as a whole, for better or for worse. It will simply not be the same Islamic world if Saudi Arabia normalizes its ties with the Jewish state. And uh, the Saudis uh, welcomed in November, after the Israeli election, a delegation of senior retired U.S. Uh, security officials from JINSA, the Jewish Institute for National Security in America, um, in, uh, in uh, Riyadh. And uh, John Hanna, uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney's national security advisor, uh, is now a senior fellow at JINSA, and he wrote up uh, on January 5th, he published a report of that delegation's findings. And what he what he what what he relayed was that the Saudis told the Americans that they're absolutely willing to make peace with Israel. They don't care about the Palestinians. They're not waiting for the Palestinians to be uh, making peace with Israel, like the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan before them. They're willing to set aside the issue of the Palestinians because they believe that it's in their national interests to normalize their ties with Israel. However, there's always however, and this however is directed at the United States. The Saudis say, look, just like Bahrain and the UAE and Morocco and Sudan before them, the Saudis say, look, we will pay a significant price. We've incited our people uh, against Israel and Jews for the past 50 years, I would argue 75 years or 80 years, but whatever. Um, and there are still a lot of radicals who hate Jews, hate Israel uh, in our midst, and uh, they will seek to topple the regime. Iran will seek to topple the regime, and we need certain guarantees from the United States uh, in order to move forward with this. And they set out three conditions. They want to reach a written, they want a written agreement with the United States setting out the U.S.'s security guarantees for Saudi Arabia. Uh, last March, uh, Qatar, which is a major state sponsor of terrorism and Iran's senior Arab ally, uh, received the status of major non-NATO ally to the United States of America. And the Saudis say that they would like to have a similar designation so that they can be assured of steady supply of weapons from the United States. Obviously, they pay for them. And the third thing that they'd like is U.S. cooperation with uh, the production of civil nuclear energy. Uh, Saudi Arabia has 7% of the world's uranium deposits. But the thing is, is that you know what Hannah said was that this is an opening bid in the beginning of a bargaining process that the Saudis hope to have with the United States. And they said that if uh, they reach this deal with the United States that uh, is satisfactory to both sides, 
that uh, they'll make peace with Israel inside of a month. Um, and obviously, this has raft implications for the United States. If the United States says no, then it essentially scuppers its entire alliance system with the Arab world. If it says yes, then it, it secures its position as the major superpower in the region for years to come. So it's a choice that has significant implications, strategic implications for the United States itself. But what it really is interesting about it, if I go back to the place that I started, you see that Ibn Saud's grandson, Mohammed bin Salman himself, uh, wants to abandon his grandfather's bargain with FDR. He's saying, we are accepting the Jews. We don't want to die destroying it, destroying the Jewish state. We're willing to accept them. We want to have peace with them. We want to have open relations with them because we think it's in our interest. So we're abandoning Ibn Saud's demands from the United States. And now it remains to be seen whether the Biden administration will follow suit and abandon FDR's hostility to the Jewish state. Um, and unfortunately and stunningly, it's not at all clear that that's the case. Uh, last week in Abu Dhabi, uh, uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and other senior State Department officials were there. And already going into the meetings, um, State Department spokesperson, spokesman uh, Ned Price said that the United States wanted to push Palestinian uh economy and human rights into the forefront of the agenda. Now, the Abraham Accords are, are sidestepping the Palestinians, and they don't want to deal with the Palestinians. They want to deal with Iran and other issues of significant bilateral concern between the parties that are members. And the United States, which was uh, under Biden, very opposed to the Abraham Accords, want to uh, overturned the Abraham Accords and put the Palestinian issue again front and center and essentially reinstate the Palestinian veto over Arab-Israeli peace. And Blinken, Derek Cholette, who is the counselor to the State Department, like Ned Price, all made clear that the United States not only wants to turn the Abraham Accords on their head, empty them of all bilateral significance, um, um, and uh, avoid the issue of Iran altogether, uh, they want uh, the Palestinians and Jordan, which is acting as a uh, proxy uh, for the Palestinian Authority as well, to join the Abraham Accords when both Jordan and the Palestinian Authority did everything that they could to undermine the Abraham Accords both before and after they were signed. So the United States is trying to undermine right now the Abraham Accords by gutting them of their intrinsic significance and pushing them into the Palestinians' first mold. Um, and so we saw that last week at Abu Dhabi, the United States, despite the denials of the administration, continues to seek uh, uh, the renewal of Iran's uh, agreement, commitment to the JCPOA, um, and so legitimize, again, their nuclear weapons program and enable financially, give them the financial wherewithal to become a regional hegemonic power. So we're looking at this, and uh, and we're seeing that um, the Iranians are, I mean, the Americans under, under Biden are walking away from uh, the are walking away from the Saudis and continuing their um, allegiance to Ibn Saud uh, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt's agreement from 1945. And this is a really stunning 
and uh, distressing thing. Um, but it shows that what began as an ambivalent relationship between the United States and Israel, now in the 14th administration since FDR, uh, unfortunately, that pathology continues to be a strong uh, component of the U.S.-Israeli uh, relationship. And I'm just going to leave it at there, and I'd like to take some questions as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So the first question we have is from Doris Rose Strauss, asking, what advantage is it to the U.S. to side with the Palestinians? You know, that's an excellent question. Um, hold on just one second. I have to uh, send uh, something. I think that the advantage that the United States gained from this is um, is psychic rather than strategic. I think particularly under the current administration, but not only, um, you have uh, pathological aspects of the U.S. Uh, relationship with Israel because um, that stem from a lot of things. And one of the things that it stems from is that the Europeans are very anti-Israel and always have been, or at least since the 1970s. And um, the idea is that uh, the United States wants to become more like Europe, wants to be accepted by Europe, and in order to do so, um, they adopt positions that are very um, hostile to Israel. That's one aspect to it. Another aspect to it is that traditionally, until about 15 years ago, um, there was this concept in the United States that um, they couldn't be too good to Israel without risking their relationships with the Arabs. And so, you know, traditionally, the Arabists in the State Department were uh, hostile to Israel because they were friendly to Aramco and to the Saudis. And uh, and so they didn't, they wanted a lot of distance and daylight between the United States and Israel in order not to antagonize the Arabs. I, I think that there, the counter argument to that is that the Arabs always respected the United States when the United States stood by its ally, Israel. And so um, ironically, uh, being opposed to Israel uh, always undermined America's position in the Arab world because it made the United States look weak. And standing with Israel made the United States say, uh, be perceived as strong, and therefore uh, they were uh, they were more welcome in the Arab world. But be that as it may, that was the position. Um, today we also have another um, relatively new, I mean, about twenty years old um, position that's now unfortunately becoming the dominant position in the in the Democratic Party, uh, which is extremely hostile to Israel and increasingly also openly anti-Semitic. Um, that views uh, that embraces the concept that Zionism, the Jewish National Liberation Movement, is a form of racism um, that opposes the very existence of Israel. We hear people like Rashida Tlaib, but and Ilhan Omar, and and many others now uh, in the Progressive Caucus, which has over a hundred members uh, in the Democratic uh, Congressional uh, uh, Group. Um, and they are talking about a one-state solution, and they're not talking about it along the lines that I set out in my book, The Israeli Solution, a one-state plan for peace in the Middle East, which is that the one state is Israel. They're saying that the one state will not be Israel, and that Israel will be subsumed into a larger uh, Israeli-Arab and effectively Arab anti-Jewish uh, state of Palestine. So, um, so they are they are driven by a woke. Uh, cultural Marxist 
uh, exceedingly uh, hostile ideology that rejects Israel's right to exist. Thank you so much. Andrew Rosemary, uh Marine asks, uh, what can we do, what can we do to help U.S. and Britain to assist Israel to destroy Iran's nuclear program militarily? Um, well, I think that, you know, uh, a lot of this, I, I think that Americans have to be uh, making their voices heard uh, to congressmen and to senators. The Democrats still retain the majority in the Senate. I think Menendez is still the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And there are other uh, senators uh, who oppose the Iran nuclear deal and oppose Iran going nuclear and oppose the administration's position on Iran. There are far fewer of them on the Democratic side than there were, to be sure, in 2014 when the JCPOA was coming up for approval uh, in uh, before the before the Senate. Uh, but they still uh, exist, and together with the Republicans, they comprise a majority of the Senate. So I think that um, that they should be turned to. Um, and uh, their voices should be heard. And I also think that it's important for Jewish organizations in the United States to um, be speaking out uh, and um, and calling for the Biden administration to support uh, Israeli-Saudi uh, peace. I think the other thing that's very important here is for the American people to uh, pressure the administration to support the Iranian people who are trying to overthrow the regime in Tehran. To date, the administration has done nothing but pay half-hearted lip service to the Iranian people that are literally being killed for freedom, who are demanding the overthrow of the regime. The uh, State Department and other, um, other spokespeople in the administration have been belittling the significance of what's happening in Iran. Uh, and there has never quite simply been something like this in Iran since the 1979 revolution. Um, there are every day, still today, there are anti-regime demonstrations uh, taking place throughout the country, not only uh, in Tehran, but in Iranian Kurdistan and Baluchistan and Iranian Azerbaijan, in all of the provinces, in all of the major and minor cities, in Qom, which is the seat of religious power of the Iranian uh, ayatollahs. Uh, at the seminar in, in Qom, people are calling for the overthrow of the regime and the death to the dictator Ali Khamenei. Um, Britain today uh, is considering uh, leaving the JCPOA. Uh, there's a very large demonstration, I believe in, in Germany today of Iranian emigres. Uh, calling for Germany, which is the weakest link in Europe, to recognize the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, as a terrorist organization. And there are voices in Sweden and other countries calling for a cessation of uh, diplomatic relations with the regime. <clears throat> These are all important. Americans should be calling for an expulsion of the Iranian delegation to the UN. And... Um, uh, an, a cutoff of, of relationships between U.S. Politici politicians in Washington and the National Iranian American Conference, NIAC, which is a mouthpiece of the Iranian regime and their unofficial lobby in Washington. So all of these things that uh, undermine 
the legitimacy of the Iranian regime that support the Iranian people in their quest to overthrow the regime are important. These are things that the American people can do. This is pressure that the American people can bring to bear on the administration, on their elected officials. Um, I think that there was a demonstration in Washington about a month ago in, in support of the Iranians. I think that the more widespread uh, demonstrations and other uh, public expressions of support for the Iranians, even if it's on an organized move on social media and other places, is exceedingly important. So I think it's important uh, on this score to voice a position to the nuclear deal, to voice support for the overthrow of the Iranian regime by the Iranian people, not through boots on the ground of American soldiers or airmen, but um, but rather the, by helping the Iranian people do what they're already doing, which is fighting for their freedom on the ground in Iran to overthrow the regime and to support uh, an American Saudi rapprochement that will serve as a basis of uh, Israeli-Saudi peace, which will end effectively the Arab world's conflict with the Jewish state. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, since the U.S. is backtracking and um, care of Flora Love Katz asks, how would Saudi Arabia and Israel deal with Hamas, Hezbollah and other Iranian proxies? Were Saudi Arabia and Israel to pursue their own negotiations and can they sidestep the U.S. and move forward? I think they already are sidestepping the United States. I think that, uh, and this is not with any inside knowledge, just simply by watching events from the outside. It seems clear to me that Israel and the Saudis have been um, aligning their positions on these issues since at least 2014. Uh, in the 2014 Hamas war against Israel, protective edge, uh, the Saudis and the UAE were almost openly siding with Israel against uh, Hamas uh, and the Muslim Brotherhood. In 2006, we, we squandered the opportunity, but the Arabs were supporting Israel against Hezbollah in the war that summer. Um, they have not made any effort to hide uh, their rejection of uh, an opposition and uh, desire to see the end of Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, I think that Israel made a huge mistake in the waning days of the of, of the Lapid government in uh, signing the uh, gas deal with uh, Hezbollah-controlled Lebanon. Um, that was a deal that was that Israel was uh, coerced into signing by the Biden administration, and it was done in an illegal manner without uh, receiving Knesset uh, approval. Um, and that was a deal that served uh, America's goal of enriching Hezbollah uh, by giving them rights to a natural gas deposit, part of which is in Israel's territorial water and a larger part of which is in Israel's declared economic waters. So um, this was a, an act of hostility, I would say, by the Biden administration against Israel. They took advantage of a weak uh, government that was about to be defeated in an election to force this down Israel's throats. Um, and I think that Israel undermined its credibility with Saudi Arabia uh, and the Gulf states by agreeing to this deal with Lebanon and by presenting it as a move towards peace when it was a whole-scale surrender to demands by Hezbollah, uh, which is controlled by Iran and is, in fact, a division of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. So that was a big mistake. I think that Netanyahu's uh, re-election and his criticism during the election of the gas deal that Lapid concluded 
went a long way towards uh, restoring Israel's uh, stature in the eyes of the Gulf states. They were probably happier uh, than most Israelis were that uh, Netanyahu and his coalition partners uh, uh, won the uh, won the elections. Um, and I think that that was very important. So I think that, I mean, the UAE has already declared Hamas a terrorist organization and the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization back in 2015. Um, and so I think, and Hezbollah as well, uh, Saudi Arabia cut off ties with Lebanon, stopped transferring funds to Lebanon and the Lebanese government some years ago uh, when they recognized that uh, the president or the prime minister of, of Lebanon at the time, um, uh, Hariri was really just a Hezbollah puppet, puppet. And so they tried to get him not to return to Lebanon. He uh, and uh, the United States sided with um, Hezbollah essentially uh, and coerced uh, the Saudis uh, to let uh, MBS, uh, to let, I'm sorry, uh, Hariri leave Saudi Arabia and go back to Lebanon where he pledged his allegiance to uh, Hezbollah. All right, thank you so much. We're reaching the end of our webinar, but before mm -hmm. we go, can you tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? Sure. Um, so I'm the uh, senior uh, contributing editor of Jewish News uh, Syndicate, JNS.org, and you can find my stuff there. I, I am the host of the Carolyn Glick Show that appears both on JNS and on my own YouTube channel, The Carolyn Glick Show, YouTube channel that comes out generally on Tuesday nights. Um, I'm go I have uh, as well, I, I'm a columnist for Newsweek um, and all of my work, including my podcasts and all of my columns and the archive of all my columns going back to 2002 uh, is available on my website, carolynglick.com. So you can read me both at my website at jns.org at Newsweek, and uh, and watch my uh, and watch my uh, weekly shows at uh, the Carolyn Glick Show on YouTube or on my website or at jns.org. All right, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Mrs. Glick, for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Of course, for our viewers, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for Israel Insider this week with Navet Dromi. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs>